The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. You know, often the liberal church is referred to as the secular church. But to be perfectly honest, there are areas where the evangelical church is also secular. I think we find this oftentimes in our approach to evangelism. Because if we're not careful, we paint this picture of Christianity as this ease, comfort, and pleasure. Get saved and your troubles are over. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that's definitely not the case. There is a cost to discipleship. For it means leaving anything that might deter us from God's will in our life. Taking up our cross and following him. Now, Jesus stated the cost clearly, as we know. For example, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in those verses that delineate the character of those who should be his disciples, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In these verses, Jesus indicates that the normal expectation for someone who follows Christ is persecution and trials. Now, this is what the disciples who listened to Jesus heard, and we find them relating that in their own writings. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Peter said, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then in 1 Peter 4, 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then he further adds in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now let me just pause here for a second. Peter is saying, look, don't be shocked when they come, not if they come, should they come, but when they come. But notice he says, they come upon you, what? To test you, to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. You and I both know that our faith grows not in ease, comfort, and pleasure, but in the difficult situations of life. He continues in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Paul, who had himself endured much persecution, writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then to others, he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He says it's granted to you like it's some wonderful thing. You know, think about that the next time trial comes. Wow, I'm counted worthy to suffer with Christ. He says it's going to come. So we start off by making our first point, and that is be forewarned. 
It's along these same lines that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of persecution in the opening verses of chapter 16. Last week, we saw very clearly, very detailed, that the world, that is the unsaved world, genuinely doesn't like Christians. And we saw how they persecuted Christians and why they persecute them, because they didn't like Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus because they didn't like the Father, because he exposed them for what they are. So let's, let's look at our opening uh, passage in chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now let me just pause there for a second. Jesus knew that when, when people are tested and trialed, the natural, normal result is to quit. It's to fall away. Is, is this what Christianity is? Is this what I signed up for? I thought when you got saved, you trusted Christ and he met all your needs. Well, doesn't he? But yet Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you these things so you won't fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now Jesus is getting ready to leave and he's preparing them. Now, clearly these verses are a continuation of the disclosure we saw in chapter 15. But now they have their own specific things to talk about. They are very clear, and the emphasis now is on two key areas, excommunication and murder. The other quite startling revelation of these verses is that all this persecution is not coming from secular society. It's coming from religious people. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the, we get hurt more by our brothers and sisters in Christ than we do in the world. Amen? Now, of course, he's not talking about these people here. He's talking about the Pharisees and the religious people. But let's look, first of all, at number one, excommunication. Verse 2 said, they will put you out of the synagogue. Now, to gain the full impact, we must understand the exclusion from the synagogue was not like being kicked out of a contemporary Christian church. Okay? You may not be allowed to join a church. You may even be put out of a church, and, and that in of itself is very concerning. But the reality is you can go find another church. In fact, just in Westerville alone, there are 12 brand-new church plants in the works. And consider all the other churches just in our town. I mean, you could leave here and go find another one next week and blend right in. But the difference is, is that in this case, in the matter of excommunication from the Jewish synagogue, excommunication meant separating from the spiritual life of Israel. Because for the one who was excommunicated, there would be no worship, no sacrifices, not even the reading of the scriptures because no one had them. You had to go to the synagogue to get that. So imagine being put out of any religious experience with your, with your friends and in the, in the, in the temple. It would also have devastating effects on the social life and the economic well-being. A person would be shunned as a pagan. He would be ex exiled from his family, and he could even lose his job. So excommunication was a total defect. 
to the person who was kicked out. Something you should, sometimes you should read uh, Martin Luther's exposition of John 16. Luther, weight, the, the weight that Luther felt when he was excommunication was pretty devastating. Uh, we often think of him as just a strong man of the Reformation and taking his stand, which he was. But Luther was affected very deeply. In fact, he portrayed himself in the role of Jeremiah, who while standing before Jerusalem declaring it, declaring it bankrupt, adding that God's judgment was quickly coming upon Judah and the city of Jerusalem, but he was shaken by his own stance and his own preaching. The leaders rebuked him by saying they were God's people. They even used scripture to back it up. And it kind of reminds us of that old German proverb that states, not all who carry knives are cooks. And not all who preach or hold church offices are God's people. Second, they're killed for service. The Lord continues in verse 2, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service for God. Now remember that these are the people who have rejected Christ. Therefore, they will reject his followers. They will do whatever it takes to stamp out the followers. Every one of the disciples dies a horrible death. Jesus said it was coming so that they would be prepared. But my question to you, are we prepared? We live in a country that has afforded us the ability to worship freely, to, to, to worship as we feel. But if you've watched history throughout the years, you see the slow, creeping, constricting moving of secular society. Prayer removed from the schools. Unborn life reduced to matter and not a child in the spirit of eliminating that which gets in our way. Calling the evangelical church bigots because our stance on other religions that seek to destroy the, command of the, sa the commandments of the Savior. I mean, we could go on and on, but the day is coming when we will be facing suffering for our faith, and it could be in our lifetime. Are we prepared if that's required of us? Are we any better than the disciples who were brutally murdered for their faith? You see, if this world is your home, then you won't be interested in taking a stand. But when your home is in heaven, You'll do what it takes to take a stand for Christ because that's where your reward is. So where is your heart? Let me just take you back to the verse I quoted earlier in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 for 13, and listen to him now with this in mind. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The interesting thing about all this killing and persecution is that it's entirely by religious people. It's Christ who said, again, in verse 2, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service for God. And we're starting to see this throughout the world people standing what they say is their God in persecuting Christians. It's coming to our shores. It's coming. The hour is later than we think. 
So what do we do? Well, this may sound very crazy, but rejoice. Rejoice. What is it that can allow a Christian to rejoice in the middle of persecution? Even such severe persecution as Christ has mentioned here. You may not be murdered or excommunicated for your faith, but you could be ostracized. You could have people walk out of your life when you've put all your faith in them and trust in them, and they've abandoned you. What do you do? You only have two choices. You can either be depressed and walk away, or you can get on your knees and know, because God has told us, it's going to come. And Jesus, I am going to trust you. Now, there's several reasons here. Number one, it demonstrates our identification with Christ. How can we take a stand with him and hang in there? It identifies our, our it, it demonstrates our identification with Christ. And this is involved in Christ's explanation of the world's conduct in verse 3. Notice, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. In other words, here is another statement that shows the radical difference between born-again Christians and the world. The world doesn't know God. They know themselves. But you and I know God, and we're known of God. And therefore, the world hates us. We saw that in chapter 15. So Jesus was so conscious of this fact, and I, and I want to make sure you grasp this, and I try to hit this every week because I think it's critical. The world, as he just stated in verse 3, will persecute you or hate you because they don't know the Father, because they don't know Jesus. Jesus was so conscious of this fact that while hanging on the cross, having been brutally beaten, a crown of thorns, blood flowing down his face, nails in his hands and his feet, a pathetic, wretched sight in the midst of that, he looked to the Father and he said, forgive them because they don't know. The world doesn't know what it's doing. Do we hate them or do we have mercy? When you're being persecuted for Jesus Christ, can you look to him and say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then love them like Jesus loved you. You see, the reason we don't get persecuted often is because we just get out of there. Or we make daggers back at them and talk about how awful they are, how wretched they are. Well, that's a given. But what they need to hear from you and I is God's love. What they need to hear from you and I is what Jesus said. I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Because everyone in this room was just like the world before Christ came into our lives. Can't, are you capable of loving those who persecute you, knowing they just don't know the Father? Number two, God has a purpose. He has a purpose. This is the whole point of Christ's teaching in this section. For here he is telling the persecution to come in order that the disciples should not be offended 
there's the c- a concept that we need to grasp onto. You're going to get, uh, you're going to be persecuted. Don't get offended. How can we not get offended? Well, simply put, it's not about you. It's about him. Because when the people hate you, they're hating Christ. You're just the only one they can see to lash out at. If they could lash out at God, they would. If they could build towers of Babel to get close enough to kill him, they would. Because it was tried in the Old Testament. Not. That's not the case. That's not the case. He is saying it very clearly here. Very clearly. The whole point of his teaching here is that he loves you. And the way you and I handle persecution affects the way people see Jesus. You are Jesus' representation. You are his feet and his hands. You are the ones that are to take not only the message, but the love behind the message. Jesus walked on this world, on this earth, humbly doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Some came to him, some walked away. And then on that cross, he cried out for forgiveness of their sin. That is the message he's given each one of us to go out. And so Jesus says, look, guys, don't be offended, okay? Don't be offended by this because they're going to hate you. They'll try to kick you out of the church. In fact, they'll try to kill you and think they're doing me a service because they don't know you. If you genuinely know Christ as your Savior, then the greatest thing you can do is suffer whatever comes to be identified with Christ. Now, we've been blessed for a lot of years in this country. Are we willing to take that kind of stand? Number three, growth in personal holiness. Persecution strips away unnecessary dross in the lives and draws us closer to Christ. Peter knew this. He had heard Christ's teachings, and then he experienced this himself. And those who followed Peter experienced this themselves. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 8, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested notice, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor and of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through you have, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So how is your faith perfected? Not by ease, comfort, and pleasure, but by trials. Because in the deepest trials, you understand where your treasure really is. Matthew 6 makes that clear. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ, then your treasure is not with Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's very cut and dry. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, that's who you are. And when the trials come and you run, that's who you are. Peter was pointing out that the persecution is the crucible 
in which God purifies the precious part of the Christian lives. The story is, is often told of a man who went through the Great Depression, losing his job, his fortune, a wife, his home. But he was a believer in Jesus Christ, and he tenaciously held to that faith. One day he was walking down a street in the middle of the town, and he watched for a while the workmen working on a huge church. And they were putting stone all the front, all over the front of it. One man was one of the the workers was down there chiseling away on a pretty small stone, and he was smoothing it and cutting it and shaping it. And the man said to him, "He goes, what's that going to be for?" And he said, "Well, if you look way up at the top, he goes, that's where it's going to go." He said, "Down here, I'm chiseling it and molding it so it fits where." And you know something, folks? This life is totally, not a little bit, totally about preparing you and I for what's coming. As a man thinking in his heart, so is he. How do you think this morning? Where is your heart? This life is preparation for future. The steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. Bible makes that very clear. And if your steps lead you through trials right now, rest assured he has the situation in control. What he's looking for is a surrendered heart to be molded for the next step. You will come through if you trust him. Number four, it is it shows the supernatural radiance of the Christian life. If all is going well in your life and you rejoice, What's so remarkable about that? But if all's going wrong and you rejoice, that's remarkable and others take notice. Paul and Silas singing at midnight in a prison in Philippi. (laughs) I'm sure the jailer had seen all kinds of prisoners. He'd seen sullen prisoners, rebellious prisoners, hopeful prisoners, dejected prisoners. But I doubt he had seen two prisoners who after, after being beaten to within an inch of their lives, sit in shackles and chains in a prison and sing glorious praises to God's Father. We know that jailer was so moved because when the Lord opened the gates for them to leave, he fell down on their feet and cried out, what must I do to be saved? Imagine having that kind of impact on people that you come in contact with because they look at you in the midst of a struggle and all they see is praises to God. All they see is a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. Folks, that's what affects people. Not how successful you are, not how wealthy you are, not how comfortable you are, but how you live in the midst of the storm. That's what gets to the hearts of people. He could have, he could have explained it as an earthquake. The jailer could have said, wow, earthquake. But no, he knew. Because it was impossible for two people to react like that to this kind of situation. And people will see Jesus in you as you trust him in the midst of the storm. You know, one of the great teachings of the word of God is that believers may always reckon their losses among their greatest gains. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In other words, 
It's an active choice of my will to give up everything for Christ. It's the choice of surrender. And you know, you and I can really take heart. John 16, back in our passage, John chapter 16 and verse 33. Here's what he said. I've said these things to you, that in me, not the world, not struggles, not your achievements or success, but in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I mean, think about that. The very things that trouble you, the very things that knock you off, the very things that cause life to stink, he's already defeated. So for you to get buried down in the trials and struggle and just feel so down and out, you're doing so in a situation that God has already defeated. So you might as well rise above it and give him the glory because you are headed somewhere and he is leading you every step of the way. You can live an overcomer's life. It's your choice. God has given you all the tools and he's worked within you and given you the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. So either you surrender to the Spirit or surrender to yourself. You know, in Lamentations, the writer is speaking of the greatness of God. And I'm so taken by this particular passage in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. He says, remember, he's praying, he says, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood, the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. What he's saying is, God, remember what I'm going through. I'm constantly brought down by it. Are you brought down by your trials, your fears, your struggles? Verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And when you and I can get to the point where no matter what this life throws at us, you can get on your knees and give him glory. That's the life Christ can work with the life he can work with. I mean, it's just so clear if you really allow the Spirit of God to work through you. All the resources he's offering. But so often we choose to just get buried down with the grief, buried down with the struggles, buried down with how people treat us, buried down with how people look at us, buried down with our self-esteem, buried down with all the cares of the world. And Jesus says, um, my son, my daughter, I've already defeated that. that. That's beaten. I did that on the cross 2,000 years ago. Come up to my air and breathe my air. And let's do something with Christ. That's what he's telling us. The sufferings of this present world are not worthy, not worthy to be compared with the future glory that awaits you. It's an active choice of your will. Either you'll rise above it and trust him or you'll continue to suffer 
There is such freedom being offered this morning through his grace. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, I don't want to minimize your struggle because it's real. You know, sometimes we get too high in the sky. Oh, have more faith and you'll be, no. You're feeling pain, it's real. And I'm not trying to tell you that this is an easy way to get out of it. What I am telling you is Christ has defeated it. Rest in him and let him take you through it. When you go through it with him, then the outworking, the testing of the genuineness of your faith will build you up to a place where you can rise above it all and know that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. And wouldn't we just want to have that this morning? Let's bow our heads this morning. And Father, as I think of all that you've done for us, trials, persecutions, they're coming. There's no getting away from them. We want to be very clear about that. But you knew they were coming, and so you prepared us in advance. You gave us this volume of 66 books to share every step of the way how to triumph while we're still here on earth waiting for your coming or when we're called to be with you. But Lord, I know that there's a lot of people struggling. And sometimes it's difficult to learn how to trust. And while heads are bowed, if you're one of those folks that you just want prayer to get over it, I won't call you out, but if you'd like to just slip up your hand and just say, remember me, would you? I'm trying to get through this. Anybody? Yes, amen. Thank you. Amen. Yes. Amen. All over. Father, you've seen the hearts of these people. They hear the words, they know who you are, but yet it's still difficult to get past that. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage to start every day on their knees, surrendering to you every step of the way, and watch you work. And in the midst of that trial, when things are difficult and it's hard to cope with, give them the assurance that one day they will be free. We have an eternal glory coming. Prepare us now. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's never trusted you as their personal Savior, they've never understood that simply you're offering eternal life. If we would understand that we are all sinners, we are not fit to be in your presence because you're holy. And because you knew that, you sent your son on the, to come to the cross and die, perfect, holy, sinless Jesus Christ die and pay the price for your sins. And if there's anyone here who wants to know that, I pray, Lord, that they would come to me or, or one of the men or women here and not leave without knowing, having that assurance that they can be saved. Work your words in the hearts of these